This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 13, The Giver OAVs. Zap those Zoanoids. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week, I have a bit of a special guest host. Introduce what yourself. What is up, internet? I am the Sav once again. For once, not talking about robots, kind of. <laughs> Makes well, a change. Well, given your experience with anime. You will eventually talk about robots, depending oh, on yes. what I review. Because today, oh, yeah. we are going to be talking about the Giver, And not just any Giver anime. We're going to be talking about the OAVs, both the 1986 OAV and the OAVs that ran from 89 to 1992. But, uh, Sav, before we begin, can you give us the general premise of what the Giver is all about? Oh, I would love to. Okay, so, picture a world where the human race has no idea that there's a war going on. There is a company called Kronos, who have mastered this art of what they call optimizing, which turns the average person into a massive, hulking creature of unimaginable power called a zoonoid. Now, each zoonoid is gifted with either tremendous strength or bioweapons of unimaginable scale and destructive power. All of them disguised as human beings, led by this mysterious race of people called Zoolords, who we will get onto eventually. But these guys believe, fundamentally believe, that the human race was created as weapons. Now, roll in a young man called Shofukamashi. If I pronounced that right, this is the one you thing did. that's going to be down in the pronunciation of their names, as you can probably understand. Comes across, which we'll get into how he comes across it eventually, a thing called the Giver Unit. Now, Giver stands for out of control, which is just mental in its own respects, but it is a bio boosting armor. Think of it as like a parasite which latches onto you and makes you superhuman and turns you into a living weapon. I want one medically. but that's not not the best part the best part is he doesn't want it and he's trying to find out what's going on while at the same time fighting creatures that could be anyone while trying to work out what's going on and trying not to get his friends killed despite the fact that there are people dropping dead left right and center yeah i almost forgot the uh, introduction there because the giver manga was created by yoshiki takaya in 1984 i believe it is and it is still going to this day. Oh yeah, you can still get the the copies of it. I believe there are um, there are omnibuses, and it's it's done in years. Really? Because I have never seen the Giver manga for sale here in America. I have only ever seen the Money Bay, uh, and they're usually not in English translation. <laughs> well, yeah, it's thirty five volumes, which. You know, for a series going that long is nowhere near at the length of something like One Piece or Hajime no Ippo. Oh, yeah. But the fact that the Giver it's, has survived for this long is quite uh, spectacular. 
it feels very much like a niche within manga as well and anime in general because you always hear people going when you say anime they say things like like so your one piece gundam wing you've got if you want to push the boat out i mean you could argue escaflone mm-hmm. if we want to really go back yes i'm that big a nerd girls run away now you've got things like oh i'm trying to remember all the names you've My got Hero uh, academia academia oh crap harlot space pirate oh i'm amazed that you know that one that's a deep cut for most casual fans that's a classic one there's a bubblegum crisis if you know those ones you'll be very impressed because those were those were again those were the stables of my uh friday afternoons when i got home from school we'll get into well, that we'll, at we'll, some point we'll, we'll talk we'll we're you're kind of jumping ahead a little yeah. bit but yeah the guyver it still has a bit of a cult status in japan the manga is still ongoing and it has had several anime adaptations and the first oh, yeah. one we're going to be looking at is the original one-shot from 1986, produced by Studio Live and directed by Hiroshi Watanabe. His most notable credits are several of the Slayer's OAVs, and he was the writer for the You're Under Arrest TV series, along with directing seasons 2 and 3 of Hell Girl. Oh, nice. I'm really glad you can pronounce their names, because I look at them on the screen and I'm just like, right, I'm going to dislocate my jaw. <laughs> And then I'm going to try and get... (laughs) I watch a lot of hockey, and I've actually taken several years of Japanese because I am a weeb. nice. If you really want to stump me on how to pronounce something, ask me to pronounce some Polish names. Yeah, they can get entertaining. (laughs) Mike Krzyzewski. As long as you add ski at the end of it, you can always argue that it's Polish, but we're getting sidetracked again. Yeah, the this guy's resume, though, other than that, he's mostly directed stuff that is completely forgettable, like Jing King of Bandits, Love Ueki, and the painfully average series Mythical Detective Loki Ragnarok. I've heard of them. I've been told to avoid it, and I can understand why. (laughs) I reviewed it back when I was doing video reviews. It manages to take Norse mythology and make it completely uninteresting. That's an achievement unto itself. It just proves that what I say is that the worst kinds of anime are the ones that are painfully average. Yeah. It's like nothing, but you can't even mock them. You have to just sit there and be like, well, that's... That's an hour of my life I'm never getting back. The producer and the screenplay for this was written by a guy named Monta Ibu, which is the nom de plume of Toyo Ashida, a man who was quite the figure in 80s anime because he served as the director for virtually everything Fist of the North Star. Oh, yeah. The TV series... Uh, Fist of the North Star 2, and the Fist of the North Star movie. But yeah, you bring you bring him up, and immediately, the, the, like you say, Fist of the North Star is the first thing that people jump to, and that's a hell of a standard. He also directed the Vampire Hunter D OAV and the lovably trashy Ultimate Teacher. He also served as character designer on things like Fairy Princess Minky Momo, Galactic Drifter Vifom, uh, he was guest character designer on Machine God Don Cougar, and he was a producer on the co-production The Mysterious Cities of Gold. That's going back a bit. Mysterious Cities of Gold, I remember that. Yeah, he's uh, he's got quite the resume to him. Look him up. Uh, just ignore the fact that he was the producer on Grenadier, but 
Um, where did you first discover the Giver? Because you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, so I'm I'm a, a late '80s, early '90s kid. I grew up, I I grew up when things like if you had more than four channels in your house, you had Sky TV, and you were you were one of the elite. And my my dad didn't really sleep at night because of his disabilities. But what he used to do is he would watch all these things and he would tape them for me. Now some of them he didn't show me because they were full of very very angry sex and violence. Um, <laughs> looking at you in particular, violence, Jack. Um, oh. I saw I saw them when I was a bit older. I'd like to point this out. Now I would like to point out I saw the original what we're talking about just now, the original Giver OAV. From was it eighty nine or was it eighty? 80 uh, the first one was eighty six. The second one was eighty six. I saw this one after I saw the original eighty nine series of twelve episodes, and I can honestly say that it blew my mind when these when I saw these. It blew my mind because until then my cartoon options had been limited to the likes of um, Speed Racer and all that sort of things, where it's like. Everything's friendly. Everything's wonderful. And then you watch this, and within the first ten minutes, someone's had their skull crushed, their arms have been ripped off, there's blood spewing out of their arm sock, their elbow sockets, and there's a naked woman standing in front of me in the shower. <laughs> oh. And it's like it's. I, I, I'm quite up to spending the next three hours talking about this, but I know that you'll probably drop dead before I will. The way I first heard about the Giver was that I was at Anime Next 2006 or 2007, I believe it was, at the Meadowlands Expo Center in Secaucus, New Jersey. And I was sitting in on the ADV panel, I believe it was David Williams and his wife, and I think Barbara Goodnight or Christine Outen was there, I don't remember. But somebody in the crowd asked the question, do you guys have the license to The Giver? And David Williams looked at the guy and said, we can neither confirm nor deny that we have the rights to the Giver. And shortly thereafterward, ADV announced that they had the rights to the Giver, the 2005 series, which is a whole separate review in and of itself. So yeah. I have no idea what this thing called the Giver was or what it looked like, but I did do like Google image searches of it when I was at school and this thing looked badass. Like, it looked like a Power Ranger, but like a villain of sorts. And we'll talk about that when we're talking about the design of the Giver. But I had no idea that this thing not only had a new series, nor was it that old, but I had no idea that it had several other OAVs. And from what I read at the time, they seemed to be remembered quite fondly. I don't know if the fans of today look back fondly on both the one-shot and the 90s OAVs, but it was quite interesting, and of course, the biggest uh, surprise about the Giver, to those who may not know, this thing had not one, but two live-action movies, and would you like to review mm -hmm. those someday, Sub? Oh, yes, because that's some world-class quality cheese on their ones, and they're worth every penny. I've um, heard the first movie wasn't that great, but the second movie is actually pretty good. The second movie uh, is quite good. The first one's hilarious. Although the first one has Mark Hamill in it, which is really funny. Yeah, but the second one's got Solid Snake. Yeah, that's one of the great little fact trivia facts of the world, is before he was Solid Snake, he was the Giver. But before we 
get into the meat of this uh, one-shot OAV, I want to know what your thoughts were on the animation, because I thought it was solid, but not spectacular. Like, this was definitely sort of a mid-budget OAV. Yeah, I, it's what lets it down, and it's like... The only way I can describe it is it's like when your dad buys a new car, and you're all happy, and you're all excited, and you get in, and you find out... He hasn't scrimped the extra couple of pennies to get the one with aircon and cruise control. <laughs> and it's the and it's like you're looking at it and it's like, it's great, but could you not have just saved a little bit longer and waited and just got that little bit extra in? And I think that's and it's a pretty good analogy for what it is, because this animation it's not even what I would call okay for the time. Because at the time there was some fantastic animation standards coming out. This was 86, right around the time the OAV scene was starting to bud. But yeah. I've seen enough 80s OAVs to know that with this sort of, like, washed-out pastel color palette, combined with some of the shortcuts that they take, that this is definitely not a high-budget OAV you'd see on the level of something like Bubblegum Crisis, or Giant Robo, or Gunbuster. Oh yeah, this was it was definitely uh oh we got this, can we give it a go? And then they've obviously someone in management has gone, Oh yeah, just just do it, here's a little bit of money, go go knock yourselves out. Right, now that they're out of the way, let's look at what we actually want to spend money on. Which is a shame because I think it, if it's teetering right on the edge of greatness and the animation holds it back. The other thing that holds it back is he sub is some of the subtitles, but that's beside that's a different conversation. Yeah, the uh, the because you can find this thing on YouTube, but it's like the the LA Hero VHS subs, and the subtitle translation is not the best, but it's not the worst either. It's not the best, and speaking as someone who has um, dyslexia and struggles seeing some color back colored writing on certain backgrounds, there are bits where I have to pause it and go, right, what the hell are they saying? Yeah, this was, um, this was ripped from a VHS tape. It never got released on DVD here in America. Oh, it, it's it'll never see the light of day on DVD. It's one of those tragedies. It's like people... It deserves to be released. What it deserves is a remaster, if I'm honest. I don't know if those masters still exist, though, but... That's the problem. More to your point. Yeah, the best quality rip you're gonna get is, like, from a laser disc or something. Yeah, and even then, you're still talking rocking horse poop to find one of those. Another thing that I feel kind of both helps and hurts it is the soundtrack. That glorious synth cheese soundtrack. I was hoping you wouldn't bring this up. Yeah, it's painful. It's not the worst it's... soundtrack, but I think it's memorable by how corny that whole synthesizer soundtrack is, especially that one track that they keep using during the action sequence that sounds like the yeah. Korg. It's 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 like the whole sequence where he's fighting through the docks, and I was gonna you say just sit that. there and they're playing this sort of guitar music, and the only bit you can understand if you know the song is when he's this guy's yelling "Giver." It's it's not even like, and you're just big... listening to him sing, and it's just like. I can't tell if he's just mumbling or if he's unintentionally being... They have got this great sequence where he's fighting through. There's explosions going everywhere. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. And then you've just got this heavy sort of... someone's. It's almost like they phoned it in. 
Yeah, it's it's not even like a heavy metal track either, and heavy metal was a thing no. in Japan at this time. It's more like this really upbeat kind of city pop kind of song, and it just does not. If there was such a thing as pop idol in those sort of days, it would definitely be the um the mute the album for that year. But you know what I mean? It's, it's oh like, yeah yeah yeah. Like, it sounds like something you'd hear on the X Factor. Oh yeah, it's, it's just like, and, and this is a, with the album for the X Factor. Kaiba! It's definitely it's just no a... heart of madness, that's for sure. No. Some of the Japanese animes, and this is where I, my knowledge lets me down, is I don't know who sings the songs or anything in them, but I know that there are some that have had fantastic backing music. I don't have the composer written down, mostly because he's never really done anything significantly. I think the person who arranged the insert song, I believe the person who arranged that insert song or some of the music was the guitarist or vocalist for the pop band Godaigo, who famously did the insert song and ending theme to the first Galaxy Express 3-9 movie. God, that's going back a bit. Yeah, I think that's sort of the stuff out of the way. From a technical side, it's not spectacular, but from a story no. standpoint, I know fans tend to not like this one because, well, it's not faithful to the original manga. Because once we get to the 90s OAV, that one pretty much adapts the manga almost note for yeah. note. But you said earlier that you prefer this one-shot? I, I like the one-shot, well, primarily for um, the fact that they've got a female Giver too. Oh which yeah, I, Valkyria! Which, which I find deeply impressive, because it, it's like, for Japan in those days, it was a ballsy move to have a woman as... A number two, like as a, a head director type person in the, the evil organization. And you could absolutely tell that she was going to die. It's, because someone that sinister doesn't survive the third act. It's really interesting to see, well, not necessarily a female villain, but a female tokusatsu hero or heroine. Because oftentimes, when you have the female tokusatsu villain, they're often like the Empress, like uh, mm -hmm. Witch Bandora slash Rita Repulsa. But you, yeah. like, you don't have the female tokusatsu heroine that transforms. So it's a no. very nice change of pace. And can I just say that she has such a great introduction? Because Valkyria is a fit girl. Oh yeah, she's a statement and a half. And it's like, when when she walks in and becomes Giver 2, and it's that sequence oh, God, of it bonding with sequence. her. That people, sequence. People do not watch that with your siblings or your parents, oh because they'll God. question what the heck. Yikes. Uh, it's, it's definitely a sequence to behold, but it's the fact that they took the ballsy approach of making it very graphic, very visceral. Well, the Giver... At the same, t at the same time, showing nothing. The Giver unit effectively, um, it's symbiotic and it attaches your skin to you and, uh, well, you fill in the it, blanks. It, it goes everywhere. It gets into you, I would say. But the way that it shows her becoming, and you can still, and the thing is, you look at Sho as the Giver and you can tell that it's Sho because you look at him and you see that it's like, yes, he's this powerful sort of being, but there's no sort of, how can I put this? There's no battle scars to him. It's very fresh, very sort of... It's very almost clean. Very new, very clean, yes. Underdeveloped. He's not got the chest size of the later one. Mm, Giver 3, who will... Giver 3, who's also got the horns and stuff coming off of his one. And as we go into the, uh, the OVA series, they made several adaptions to that as well. But when you look at Giver 2, 
you can absolutely tell that it's just it accentuates her figure, her chest, just everything, and it makes her look fucking evil. I think there's something unique to having that female tokusatsu heroine. I mean, obviously, I, I, I lie when I say there's no female tokusatsu heroines. Of course, there's, like, the Pink Rangers and Super Sentai slash Power Rangers. But, like, you don't see many main female toku heroes. But, again, I'm not up on my tokusatsu. No, and a lot of the ones, like you say, of, like, the Power Rangers and stuff, they do their best to gender neutralize them. I think we're getting a little off track we, here, we, but... We're getting off topic. Um, that said, I do want to talk about the design of the Giver, though. Because oh, that's sort of what drew me to it. How would you describe the design of the Giver? It's like if Iron Man grew his armor rather than made it. Is the best way I could describe it. I would say it's, it's like a common Rider designed by H.R. Geiger. Yes, I like that. Yeah, it is very, there is something Geiger-ish to it, isn't there? It has a very techno-organic look to it. It's yeah. mainly that little vent on the front that he has as a mouth. Mm -hmm. It's like, you look at around the time of stuff like this, you had, now I may be wrong on the dates, you had things like Techno Man and... Techno Man Blade was uh, 90s. Was he 90s? When they looked at armored suits, it was very mechanical. It was always very forged by man or forged by aliens. And it was yeah, like, you had... You could... Around the, this time, you had a lot of very popular tokusatsu heroes when the Giver was being made. You had things like Sun Vulcan and Kamen Rider uh, Super One, I believe, was around the time. And uh, the Metal Heroes franchise, like uh, Gavon and Just Beyond and, mm -hmm. and Metalder. Yeah, and it was always it was always a suit. The Giver looks like an organism. It looks Indeed. like it's grown, and as it doesn't. In the OVA, spoiler alert, it can operate on its own. Indeed, and I think that's what I like about the Givers, that there's just some sort of mysticism to it. Like, it is indeed yeah. a piece of alien technology that is not of this Earth, and that design conveys it perfectly. I think the thing that got it for me was, as you say, it's the face with the vents for the mouth, but also was the jewels or pearls in the, the head that metal. actually that shifted back and forward, and you could actually see that they were eyes as well. Oh, I never caught that. That's a great That's, catch. If you, if, you look, if you look at it when, he's, when something's attacking him from behind, it's not him that sees it. You see one of them shift to catch what is it's like a like a chameleon's or a, a it's like a sensor eyes. almost like yeah, a, it's like it's, a, it's a like radar. little radar yeah yeah a radar that's what i was gonna say um and it's the fact that putting those blades on the elbows yeah the arm blades as well the the the, the high frequency elbow blades as opposed to having them you know come out of the wrists or grow into a sword and it's like it sort of formed its own martial art from it as well let's also not forget his signature attack Oh, the Mega Smasher. How does this attack work, Sov? Okay, so... Giver, Zoonoid, beating the crap out of each other. Zoonoid is reaching the final stage. And in, in, if you imagine it, it's like... In Power Rangers, they would always have the sword, and they'd call the sword down, and then they'd do the swing. And that. What the Giver does is he puts his hand on his chest, opens up his pectoral plates, and that's the only way I can describe this, and two massive, massive jewels start charging with energy... And a massive organic bio laser blasts out. And what I loved is you could always see 
a triple of destruction behind it, saying that it was that powerful. It overshot. It was so powerful it would blast clean through whatever he was hitting and keep going on through, and anything behind it was gone. It was like a pocket nuke. It was amazing, but he could only ever use it once. It basically, he kills his enemies by flashing them. Yes. He basically blasts them with his laser nipples. This is the only way you can really sort of describe it. It's nothing new, though. That idea of no. a chest laser uh, was taken from Mazinger Z's breast fire, where Mazinger Z fired a heat beam from its chest. Uh, Yoshiki Takaya, the creator of The Giver, even said that his main influence for The Giver was Common Rider. And this is mm -hmm. basically a darker, kind of edgier take on Common Rider. It's definitely a much better attempt at an edgier Common Rider than Shin Common yeah. Rider. I've not seen that, probably for the best. It was basically the original creator's attempt to make a more mature Common Rider, and it flopped. Oh dear. The story of this OAV is pretty straightforward. You know, we see that Sho becomes the Giver, although he, it, it, the place and how he becomes it is a little different than it is in the manga. Mizuki gets yeah. kidnapped by Kronos. Sho goes to save Mizuki, encounters the Giver 2 and the Giver 3, blows mm -hmm. the hell out of the Giver 2. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, she, uh, she was erased from existence. Oh There's no goodness. other way. I gotta say, that sequence, I would submit that to Daryl Surratt as a part of anime's craziest deaths. Oh yeah, melting because the control medal's been ripped out and then vaporizing. It's just, it's, just... it's so satisfying to watch, and I know I'm gonna get a ton of complaints saying that I'm a sexist for thinking that. For me, it's satisfying to see a villain get their comeuppance in a way that you know wasn't pleasant. Well, like, I felt more bad for Valkyria than I did uh, satisfied. Uh, I know what you mean. I, on the one hand, she was doing as she was told. On the other hand, she was trying to take over the world. Well, she was an aide in um, the head of Kronos's ambitions, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about Kronos on the 90s OAV. Yeah. But honestly, I feel the, the 80s OAV, for all of its faults, is a fun little popcorn OAV. It's it's definitely, it's what I would call a beer movie. Is you can watch that after having ten beers, and you've had a great time, and you don't have to worry about understanding half of it. Also, can I just say this about the OAV? Because during the 80s, with the height of the OAV, a lot of these OAVs that came out during this time had a lot of graphic violence. The Giver OAV is plenty violent, but it mm -hmm. never felt like it was going too far over the top. Like it was... Just enough no. blood. There's plenty of bits where, like, the Giver will tear a Zoonoid's limbs off. Oh, and yeah. you'll see them bleeding, but it's not, like, gallons and gallons and gallons of blood. Like in something it's, like an Angel Cop or a Violence Jack. It's what I would call justified. I indeed. And I Do think you know it, what I mean? It's... It doesn't overstay its welcome, is what I'm exactly. getting Exactly. It's like, when you have the fight, the first fight between, um... Gregol and the Giver, and you've just seen Gregol crush a person basically to death by ripping, like crushing their, not just ripping their arms off, crushing their arms off, and then crushing their skull. And you see something, the Giver, which is smaller than what it's just beaten, rip his arms off and then remove his head. It's incredible. And it's like, it puts in perspective the power of the Giver, but also 
it's not, you know, insanely gory. There's what you'd believe is a reasonable amount of blood for something just having both arms ripped off. It's also not like the super thick kind of paint-like blood that you see in, like, Apocalypse yeah. Zero. But it's, like, just, it's enough. Just enough. And you mentioned Violence Jack. I believe one of the Violence Jacks OVA was 1988, so not long after this had come out. Yeah, Violence Jack and, was indeed late 80s. And they were. It, I mean, it, it, wow. It, it, it's violent to the point of being mean-spirited, but with this, I think the violence is tolerable, just enough. Yeah. And I feel that it's sort of the intent of the author, uh, Yoshiki Takaya, who effectively wants to convey that Giver is basically a superhero for adults. Yeah. Like, he's not I mean, simply going to rider kick his enemy and they're going to explode. Like, he yeah. cuts them into pieces. And it's like, you mentioned briefly the, um, the two live-action movies. The second live-action movie is called Dark Hero, and it's very, very accurate description for what the Giver is. He's not the likes of, you know, your Batmans or your Kamen Riders or your, or if we, if we want to talk more adaptations, Saber Rider or things like that. He's very much, uh, this is mum and dad's hero. The hero you for grown-ups. Your... Yeah. This is a, a hero show for grown-ups who know that in the real world, the monster wouldn't just be beaten and then teleport away. They'd be eviscerated. They'd have their head taken off. And it was really well done. Before we give, like, our final thoughts on the 80s OAV, I do want to mention the Seiyu in this, because this is actually kind of a stacked cast. Oh, yeah. Show is voiced by Yumi Zushima, best known as Isamu Kurogane, a.k.a. Lance in Go Lion slash Voltron, and he was also Ryo Asuka in the Devilman OAV. Mizuki is voiced by the legendary Michie Tomizawa. Many fans my age will know her best as Sailor Mars from Sailor Moon, Rei Hino. She was also Lina in Bubblegum Crisis, Sumire in Sakura Wars, a role that she reprised for the new game, which I played and is actually pretty good. The role that I will always laugh at her the most for was that she was Roberta in Black Lagoon. Oh dear. Oh, she was it blows your mind when you find out that the voice of Sailor Mars, this hot-blooded yet cute shrine maiden, is also the world's most dangerous maid. Valkyria Giver 2 is voiced by Keiko Toda. She is most famous for being the Japanese children's superhero Anpan Man, but more endearing to me, she was the Japanese voice of Thomas the Tank Engine. That's amazing. Have you ever seen Thomas and Friends in Japanese? No, I haven't. I now have to see this. That's what I'm doing immediately as soon as we finish. I am now YouTubing that. I will send you a link in the chat. Oh, I need to see that. That's going to be hilarious. And Giver 3 is voiced by Jirota Kosugi, the voice of Jotaro Kujo from the original JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OAV. Not the new JoJo, the old JoJo. 
He was also uh, Zagato in Magic Knight Ray Earth. He was Tekaman Lance in Tekaman Blade, or as you know it, sub Techno Man. And most importantly to me, he was Joji Kaname in Samurai Flamenco. And most significantly on the Japanese side, we've got Norio frickin' Wakamoto! <laughs> you know, Cell from Dragon Ball Z, Emperor Britannia from Code Geass, Father Anderson in Helsing Ultimate, like, just go through Norio Wakamoto's credits. This guy is incredible. Just as a side note, it's a testament to the Japanese like voice acting community of how versatile they get they are you know a lot of people keep complaining about how dubs keep using the same three or four actors and i'm like you know the same is true on the japanese side right yeah it's, it's like you look at their 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 credits and as you just said i would have never put down that guyver 2 also was thomas the tank engine in japan <laughs> uh... that's my, I just, i've got this horrible image of thomas the tank engine as the guyver Oh, God, no. Please, sub, don't. Don't inspire any fan art. But I think... Oh, if there is someone out there who wants to do Thomas the Tank Engine as the Giver, please do. I want to see that just once. Oh, I think I know somebody who can, but I'll save that for later. But I think regarding the Giver, OAV, I think we've said pretty much all we can say. Like, yeah. For a one-shot, it's fairly entertaining. It won't blow you away and it's not one of the better oavs of the 1980s but you'll definitely be entertained just just ignore the fact that there is an implied tentacle scene in here yeah it, that gets a bit rough i watched um, that and i went the people who make valkyrie driver telling you to cut it out you know that in the 80s they could get away with a lot well that was the benefit of the oav you couldn't show stuff like this on television Oh yeah, but I mean, OAVs, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I, this was my introduction to OAVs. If it had been some other things, I would have probably been traumatized, because it would have raised the question of, wait, you can't put that there, oh wait. Can you imagine if your first anime ever was Violence Jack? You would be a very disturbed little boy. You'd also be definitely seeking psychiatric help, but that's another, that's another question for another time. As I mentioned earlier, it was never released on DVD here in America, and that VHS tape is apparently quite hard to come by. I didn't check the eBay prices, unfortunately. But this is begging for somebody like Discotech Media to give it the re-release. And oh, maybe yeah. even a dub, because this thing was never dubbed. A good dub would probably bring this into a bigger audience. Maybe, although the 90s dub, as we'll see, uh... Yeah, but... Mm. Do you have any final thoughts on the 80s, OAV? If you want to experience what I would call an alternative take on the Giver manga, it is well worth it. But don't manage your expectations. Don't go in there expecting a blockbuster. Go in there expecting a high school drama. Uh, I would liken it to something from, like, canon films, where it's not going to be the best movie, but it's going to be incredibly entertaining. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like definitely Cobra. the Evil Dead. But that's going to do it for Giver Out of Control. Let's transition into the 90s OAVs. Giver! <laughs> 
So we jumped from 1986 to 1989, and this was the second attempt at adapting the Giver into an anime. This was released from 1989 to 1990, the first half was, and the second half was released throughout the entirety of 1992 by a studio called Visual 80. I believe they mostly did, like, in-between stuff or something. This series had three different directors on it. The first part was directed by somebody named Koichi Ishiguro. Episodes 7 and 8 were done by Masahiro Otani. And the final few episodes were done by Naoto Hashimoto, who is an episode director on a bunch of shows that you have never heard of. Guarantee I haven't. The writer, at least for the first half, was Riku Sanjo, who, funnily enough, we mentioned Tokusatsu, actually wrote some series of Kamen Rider. Hey! He wrote Kamen Rider Double and Kamen Rider Drive, which came out in the last decade, and he was also the mangaka for Beat the Vandal Buster, and he also wrote one of the Dragon Quest manga. Oh, um, and he also wrote MD Geist. That one, but it sounds ominous the way you said that. Oh, MD Geist is special. It is a very special cookie. Is it? Is it one that I, uh, if I'm going to watch it, I should just manage my expectations? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, that one has your name all over it. Oh, goody. The back six episodes were written by Motonori Tachikawa, who did nothing significant after this. They probably came off of this and gone, right, I've peaked. One last credit I do want to note is that the character designer for this was Hidetoshi Omori. I mentioned that in my Robot Carnival review, this guy didn't do anything significant because his most notable credit was being the director for the Deprive segment, which is a really cool little 80s action piece. But it turns mm -hmm. out he was character designer for a few shows, and this was one of them. I think it's something I would like to talk about at some point in this is the the Zoonoid design, but I think we'll get on to that at some point. Oh yeah, point. We, we'll talk about the Zoonoids when we get to Kronos. Yeah. Immediately, I can tell that from the first half, the animation is a lot better than the 80s OAV. Like, it had a little more money poured into it. It still has that sort of grainy, orangish tint to it, but that's yeah. likely from the production well, you got to remember when this was this was done, technology will have moved on as well. So, like the quality of cameras will have improved as well for the the taking of the animations and stuff like that. But also, you can tell this one's been done with a lot more love. I'd say like this had a little bigger budget, but yes. not like a huge budget. They definitely they they let them raid the cookie jar for this one. Yeah, this is slightly higher than what you'd see on a TV show at the time. But you can definitely yeah. tell that they had a little more money than the 80s OAV. I think someone's probably been looking for a new IP to try and get something in, and they've just thrown some cash at this in the hope that it kicked off. And it certainly did. I mean, it lasted for 12 episodes. Which is an achievement, considering what the first one came out like. It got one OAV, and then everyone was just like, ah, and that was a thing, moving well, on. Was, but this well, that's common. stuck around. Well, that one yeah. shot is kind of common on the OAV scene. I always sort of seen the OAVs. It was like, for me, they always felt like it was an attempt at a pilot. You know, a made-for-TV movie. They were super huge because Japan had a very large home video market at the time. 
Oh, right. And a lot of these, like, little one-shot OAVs were basically shipped directly to video stores, where they were something Uh that you would rent for the night that you couldn't get on television. Fair enough. That makes sense. And OAVs were also sort of meant for studios that had a little money to throw around or wanted to get their name out there. They wanted to make this, and I've never heard of Vision 80 before this, so their attempt at making an adaptation of The Giver was clearly their attempt to try and break through to the mainstream, to be on the level of something yeah. like an AIC, a Madhouse, or a Toei. Well, okay, maybe not Toei, but you get the picture. It, it's Tokyo definitely... Shinsha, that's the that's what I was thinking of. The series, when you watch it, and then you watch um, the OVA, yeah, you can, yes, you can definitely see that the budget has been given a much... They've definitely been handed more biscuits. But it definitely, it feels like, even though I prefer the OVA to this, it definitely feels like there's been a lot more love for the story than the series. Well, the fact that they have 12 episodes as opposed to 50 minutes gives them a lot more yeah. time to adapt things and not rush through everything, even though, from what I understand, they glossed over some details. I will say this about the animation. The first half, it's fine, but I did notice a dip in quality in the second half, in particular with how the Zoonoids disintegrated. Like, there are several dissolves, more use of speed lines, some of the monsters have trouble staying on model, and there's one scene where uh, one of the supporting characters goes to, like, super kick one of the Zoonoids, and it looks like something out of Twinkle Nora Rock Me. <laughs> where it's, like, one frame per second. Yeah, I know the scene you mean. I just I had to think about that for a second. I was like, right, where are we in the series here? And then it was just like, that happened. And yep. And now I can't remember the name of the guy, but it's the guy that always runs in the white suit, I believe, that yeah. you're talking about. Masaki Murakami. Yes. Say nothing more, because that's a spoiler. Say nothing about what? We don't do spoilers here. It almost feels like in the second half, the studio were very much a case of, right, get on with it, finish your story. Well, the series I mentioned... They released the first six episodes from 1989 to 1990. Then they took effectively a two-year break before finishing it. I don't know if it was because they were swamped with other projects or they just needed Mm. a rest. Like, even though it's the same studio with most of the same animators, you have a different director, two directors, and a different writer as well. Yeah, it makes me wonder what was produced or, like, animated or, like, drawn up at the same time. I think it would be a... I think that just be me personally, I might actually have a look and see what else was made and see what caused that delay, because it's definitely, it affected the series. You can actually see it. Whatever Vision 80 was going through, I feel that that little break really hurt the overall quality of the animation. But I'll tell you one thing where the OAV series also excels, that's the soundtrack. Yes. The opening credits to that were brilliant. Oh, that opening is a banger. It really encapsulates the sort of late 80s, early 90s anime opening where anime OPs in the 90s were shifting away from city pop and heavy metal to more like math pop, where there's like, you know, dance beats and guitars and brass instruments and all this very thick production, yet somehow never feels overproduced. Yeah, For me, it was very much, it got you going. It got the blood pumping whenever you heard it. Unfortunately, if you Um, watch this thing dubbed, you don't get that opening. Because it was like some stock techno track that was made by the ADR director. 
When I first saw it, was dubbed because obviously it was the Sci-Fi Channel. Am I allowed to mention the channel? Um, you are, man. Well, I wasn't sure if you would get done for copyright or anything. Um, the original Sci-Fi Channel on Sky at like two and three in the morning would show this, and my dad would record it for me on VHS. Yes, it was that long ago, and we, I would, I would come home from school on a Friday afternoon. This was show, it was shown on a thir- what we what we would call a Thursday night. Um, after very much after I'd gone to bed, and I would always come home on a Friday afternoon, come home, watch Giver, and then it would be Six Million Dollar Man, one after the other. Uh, it was just absolutely brilliant. But it was always the the, the start, and not so. And the dub music when I, I watched the the subbed version with the original voice actors a few years ago. Oddly enough, because someone said that the audio was a better quality for when, on the subbed version as oh, opposed yeah, to the dubbed I, version. I... I noticed a difference because I'm lucky that I own those DVDs. I got them from a used media store. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, finding them over here is a challenge in itself. Well, we'll get to um, that. I think now's a good time to talk about Seiyu again. Because it's a completely different cast this time around. Yes. The show this time around is voiced by Takeshi Kusao, who is perhaps most famous for being the Japanese voice of Trunks in Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> It's, it's amazing how well these guys get around. Speaking of uh, Dragon Ball Z, Tetsuro, show's friend, is voiced by Kozo Shioya, a.k.a. Majin Buu. And he's also Genzo in One Piece. Speaking of One Piece, Agito is voiced by Hideyuki Tanaka, most famous for being Don Quixote do Flamengo in One Piece. He is also Terry Man in the Kuniku Man series. Basically, if you want to know who Terry Man is... He's basically anime Terry Funk. <laughs> He's also Ray Earth in Magic Knight Ray Earth. Oh, I'm just wondering now, is any of these guys in Ultimate Muscle? But probably. Apparently a lot of the Japanese cast of the original Kinikuman reprised their role in uh, Shin Kinikuman, the early 2000s version. As far as the villains go, uh, Richard Gayo, the first major villain, is voiced by Hidekatsu Shibata, Fans will know him best as King Bradley in Fullmetal Alchemist. He is the narrator in Fairy Tale. I'll know him best as Count Mecha from the Galaxy Express 3-9 movie, and Takashi Nihara from Yakuza 0. Dr. Balkis, the main villain, is voiced by Seizo Kato. And how fitting in that he is the Japanese voice of Megatron. Oh, that's beautiful. Did he do Galvatron as well, or did he just do Megatron? Yes, he did, and he was also Devastator. Nice. One of my my favorite little bits of trivia, which is, oh, we're going off topic, is just how long Transformers continued after in Japan after it stopped being shown in America. I knew that. It, Um, it, It just goes on for ages. But anyway. Lastly, Masaki Murakami, who shows up in the second half, is voiced by Hirotaka Suzuoki, most famous for being Bright Noah in Mobile Suit Gundam. Once again, classic Japanese anime that everyone will know. As far as the dub goes, did you watch the dub? The dub was what I originally saw because it's what the sci-fi channel showed. I then watched the sub and I then watched the dub again because my dyslexia and subtitles never mix very well. So I tend to watch dubs in general, but I... I I watched the dub, and how can I put this? It's a very mixed cast, because you've got some phenomenal voice actors, and then some people that I wouldn't pick out of a room if I'd spoken them for 20 years. 
Yeah, I actually managed to ask the ADR director and uh, sound producer on this. A man by the name of Les Claypool. No, not the guy from Primus. This is a different Les Claypool. If you ever owned an anime DVD from the early 2000s, you'll see him credited as either Les E. Claypool or Les Claypool III. But he basically told me that recording this thing was a nightmare. Really? Yeah, like, th they recorded the whole thing at his garage. That <laughs> sounds a bit like Bugglebots. Um... Most of these people were not even, like, professional anime voice actors either. Again, it's sending more and more like Bugglebots every time. They also <laughs> apparently split production between his home in California, and they also recorded some lines in the UK. Like, one actor I recognize who was in several manga UK dubs is Bob Sanders, who... I forget the first head of Kronos. Uh, it's not Gaio who succeeds him. The guy who looks like Don Fry. Agito's dad. Agito's adopted dad. Spoiler alert. Who goes on to become something. But yes, I know who you mean, and I can't remember his name now. And it was annoying me because I used to call him something un unimpressive when I was a kid. But it's just the dub, not the worst thing I've ever heard, especially coming from manga since their dubs were kind of notorious. But the acting ranges from passable to being so wooden you could chop it up and make a shed out of it. I mean, there are a couple of moments where the cast could make a good impression of a wardrobe. Yeah, like a lot of these actors wouldn't really go on to do anything significant, but there were a few standouts. Namely, the guy who voices Show. He is voiced by Tom Fan, who would go on to voice Agumon in Digimon. Meanwhile, his sister, Melissa Fan, would voice Mizuki in this dub. Melissa, of course, would go on to voice Ed in Cowboy Bebop, among many other roles. And as for who voices Agito, this was one of the first ever appearances of Steve Bloom. Wow. Steve Bloom worked as a film distributor before this. He didn't even have an acting background when this was recorded. That's insane. It's like going through, you, you think about Steve Bloom and you don't realize just how much stuff, if, I, if I'm thinking of the right person, like he has voiced so much stuff, it's actually terrifying. Like he has done video games, he's done animes, he has done, I mean, I believe he was in some of the Medal of Honor games? I don't know if he was, I've never played those games, but I do know that he is currently the voice of animated Wolverine. Yes. He did um, Wolverine and the X-Men, which is by far and away still one of the best X-Men series. But we're getting off the, we're going off the topic again. Yeah, the dub, it's very hit or miss acting, but the one voice that Sub kind of hinted at is Richard Goyo. Do you want to take this one? Richard Goyo. At times in it, he is truly sinister. Like, properly terrifying. And then there's times as well where he just sounds like he's uh, trying to clear a frog from his throat. It's really, it's really hit or miss. Well, the thing is, is that he's voiced by Hidekatsu Shibata, and... 
Shibata has this very gruff, kind of smoker sort of voice, so he kind of sounds like this on the Japanese side, but it wouldn't sound out of place if you had somebody like Jameson Price or David Lodge voicing him. Yeah. The voice they gave him for the dub, he sounds like a high schooler doing an impression of Dr. Claw. To hell with Lisker. My more immediate concern is your failure to retrieve the units. You have forfeited your right to sit in this chair. Don't you agree with me, Mr. Makashima? Please, spare me. I admit I've made some bad mistakes, but I... I please consider my past accomplishments and all I've done for this company. Of course, your research and development technicians are rated excellent by Cronus, but management has shown a marked inability to complete even the simplest assignments for us. Agreed? Well, I can manage this company better than you can, Makashima. Is that clear? <laughs> That's a really good description. <laughs> I never thought about that until you mentioned it there. I'll get you next time, Guyver. Next yeah. time. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. He just, he just. You. Kinda... There are times where he, there are times where he is genuinely terrifying, and then there's just like it loses it. It's, it, it's like he can't decide whether to take the material seriously or not. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think the in the uh, actual. Subbed version, it's very good. Yeah, the sub is definitely better than the dub, but that's true of he, most manga's dubs yeah, from around that, this that's time. Like, that's, that's like the unwritten rule of manga, that the sub is better than the dub. Although sometimes those old manga UK dubs are fun with just how cheesy they are. Case in point, Cyber City 080 and uh, Project Aiko. I think I've probably seen those and forgotten them, but it's they, they, it can be very hit and miss with a dub. And this is... Not the best example, but not the worst. It, also, one thing that manga was sort of known for was that they were known for what is called 15ing, in that they added extra swearing to the dub to try and punch it up to get that 15 and up rating. But if there was any 15ing, I didn't notice it. It's not the like whole... they're cussing every other line. I was going to say, I work, in this, I work in the shipyards in Glasgow, and they can... We, they teach swearing as an educational topic up here. It's insane. But it's not like they're cursing a blue streak. They're, they're swearing, but it's swearing again when you would expect it. Exactly. And it's it's not like an angel cop with, uh, <laughs> with such great lines like, Oh, shit! He's a fucking lobster! <laughs> that, that's one for a t-shirt. But, like, yeah, because it's like, it, they only ever really swear. It's like, occasionally you'll hear Tetsuro or Sho call one of the Zoonoids a bastard for doing something sinister. Well, I mean, like, the seven words you can't say on TV kind of swearing. Yeah. Like, saying, like, damn or hell or crap or bitch or bastard. Like, that's kind of harmless. Yeah. I, I I believe that there are a few, um, shall we go with F-bombs or are we, are we just going to go for the word and hit the 18 rating on this thing? Yeah, they did drop a few F-bombs, but not left and right. Like, it's just no, it was... precision strikes. Yes, that's a good way to put it. It was very much a precision strike with the swearing. It was always at high-tension moments. And that was very well played, in my opinion. They didn't sort of just, as you say, bombard the swearing in to try and drive up and go, Oh, look at us, we're edgy. 
sort of like when you get 13 year olds that just master the art of swearing and they're like hey mom i can do these words look at me i'm a hardcore one other thing i just want to mention about the sound like there's two dubs for guyver there's a u.s version and the uk version and the uk audio sounds like it was recorded inside of a tin can like i'll let's... be honest i don't know which one i've seen the U.S. version has better audio quality, but it doesn't have those opening and endings, and I think they replaced some of the music. I'd have to ask less about this. I think I may have seen the U.S. version. Okay, good for you. Um, I think they, they re-recorded a lot of the dialogue, so the acting is also not as wooden. Yeah. But there's still plenty of wood to be thrown around. Oh, yes. There's a proverbial redwood forest of wood to go around on this thing. I actually wrote down, like... The acting ranges from passable to more wooden than a redwood sequoia. Beautiful. I think it stands out most when you get the Hyperzoanoid Team 5 coming in. Oh yeah, those, those, those they, guys they, they phoned that in. That was uh, well, 10 you, minutes before we've got to send this off to print. You can tell that most of these people were not trained in acting. No, you can just see producers sitting there phoning up someone and going, Dude, say these lines to my phone in a mean way. Okay, um... You can grr. find both the US and the UK dubs online, though. Yes. If uh, Discotech ever re-releases these, they'll probably include both, because I'm sure Les Claypool has both of them. I mean, it's, they're recent enough that they'll probably have them. Yeah, these were like recorded in the like the early mid '90s or something. So yeah, yeah so it's, it's they should uh, assuming there's not that they weren't like absorbed into something and lost to the annals of time. Then yeah, they probably it would be again. It's something that would be good to have a re-release. Maybe get if they've got the original um, videos, maybe run them through a a brightening wash and just bring every all the colors back a bit as well. So. We've talked about the sound and the animation. I think now we can sort of talk about the characters as well. And we start off with yeah. Sho. And how would you describe Sho Fukamachi? I think he's one of the shyest men on Earth. The first episode is just him. And it is, for the first, I'm going to say, 15, 20 minutes, is just him trying to pluck up the courage to ask Mizuki out. And it's so stereotypical teenager wallflower and it's beautifully done and he is very much like a lot of these things he's not the person that you would pick to give tremendous power in some ways he's very much inspired by akira fudo from devil man because akira in devil man was very much the same sort of shy timid teenager who wouldn't hurt a fly but through extraneous circumstances he becomes devil man Except when Akira becomes Devil Man, he assumes a whole new personality, where mm -hmm. he becomes that classic hot-blooded Gona guy hero. But with Sho, he's very much the reluctant hero. Akira kind of embraces Devil Man, but he still has that sort of humanity that he had before becoming Devil Man. But with Sho, you wouldn't guess that this kid was this H.R. Geiger monstrosity of a superhero. Yeah. I mean, for me, for my sort of where I grew up with uh, anime and comics and stuff, he very much strikes me as very much like Jaime Reyes, uh, Blue Beetle 2. Oh, that's a great comparison. Because both of them, you know, they're not the... I mean, Jaime Reyes is, you know, from a backwater and it's a slightly different setting. But they're both wallflowers. They've got friends. They've got their usual teenage powers. And suddenly they're gifted with this suit. 
that turns them into just a living weapon. And it's like trying to work out what they're going to do and trying to work out what their limitations are has suddenly gone to a whole new level because, you know, it's not every kid who can walk around that the yell can suddenly have a, the freaking Death Star gun sticking out of each nipple. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's like, and it's just as the series goes on, you see it taking a toll on them. Yeah, this is especially true because show undergoes a lot of tragedy. He suffers like no one else I've ever seen. The only person that I think has suffered more as a hero would be someone like Spider-Man. I think Ken Kaneki is in the running for that too. Yeah, Tokyo it's... Ghoul, the Walking <clears throat> Linkin Park album. Yeah, but it's just everything that could happen to him does. And all he wants to do is just live. The other parallel I would bring to him is uh, Shinichi from the manga series Parasite, which was recently adapted as Parasite the Maxim, in that he also takes on this sort of power that he doesn't want and he's afraid to use it and stuff. But mm -hmm. when he understands the circumstances of what has to be done and the people around him who are in danger of it, because Shinichi has a lot of bad shit happen to him, ultimately Sho ends up standing tall, and so does Shinichi, and... Yeah, it's the, those two sort of parallels, because both the Giver anime and Parasite came out at around the same time. Yeah, and it's like I've not seen Parasite. I'll freely admit that. I'm gonna get some. Get. I can feel the glares of the internet now as I'm sitting here. It's right um, up your alley, sub. Yeah, probably. It, I've got a lot of things on my to watch list. The problem is I keep finding new stuff and it draws me in, and then it's just like I keep having to add things. I'm like, damn it, I'm never gonna get through this before same I'm like four hundred. But with show, he's one of the most relatable people I've ever seen in my life because in terms of an animated character and a character and a story in general, because all he keeps getting is more and more pressure. But unlike in, you know, you, you see some things in most cartoons and stuff and animes and that, they rise up, they deal with it, you know, they sort of did, but he breaks. He does break at one point. Oh yeah, that's perhaps one of the best moments of the entire thing. Even though I saw it coming, I was like, no. Yeah, it threw me when I first watched it. 12-year-old me watching that, and it was like, oh, no. It's like, because of course, 12-year-old me, you couldn't, they didn't do that in a cartoon, or the, other, the Western cartoons. Because the hero always saves the day. And it was like, this was just, it was so much more... So this is sort of unfortunately a problem that Western cartoons have, even to this day. Yeah. Although a lot of Western cartoons now are ruined by the merchandise requirement. But that's a topic for another entire video. I think we've said pretty much all we can say about show. Yeah. Tetsuro? Tetsuro was not present in the OAV series, but he is here. And honestly, I think he's a good foil to show. As I said earlier, and I'll I'll say it now, he he has a use, he has a point, but for me he was very annoying. Really? Because I found him I found him to sort of be like a necessary counterbalance to show. Because you have show you mentioned show is a bit of a wallflower. He's quite shy, whereas Tetsuro is a lot more outgoing and upbeat. Yeah, he is, and as I say, he is in this series. He is the counterpoint to show's sort of introvert emotional state also one important point i have to make about his design and um what is he scott steiner he's fat <laughs>
Honestly, looking at his design, now I know where Kota Hirano from High School of the Dead came from. He's very much like Sho's fallback guy. You know, the one that sort of, when Sho feels like he can't do it, he's there to tell him, yes, like, keep him he, going. He's mostly there for emotional support. Yeah. Because you, like... you always have that one character who's there to support our hero, who may not necessarily fight or be all that effective at their job. He's the Joey Wheeler of this series. Yeah, he, yeah, that's a good analogy for it. But I always felt like they should have had Mitsuki, Mizuki doing that. Speaking of Mizuki, do you want to talk about her? Yeah, she's very much, in a lot of this, she almost represents, shows humanity. Yeah, I feel that if Mizuki was not there, like, you have no real stake for show. It feels like Mizuki is really the most important person to him in his life besides his father. Yeah. And it's like the sequence that goes on later in the series when they're getting explained about the the origins of the Zoonoids and the, the Giver units and all that, and they're talking about the development, and it's her breaking down. Yeah, Mizuki, she's a very delicate flower. Yeah, bless her. She is a person who, I think, she's she very much she gives Sho something to fight for later in the series. She's... Even in the OAVs, like, you could clearly tell that Sho mm -hmm. has feelings for her. And yeah. will protect her no matter what. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, when Sho has his breakdown later on in the series, it's her that he fights for, not himself. Which is, in some respects, is key because it's far more powerful that he's putting himself through hell for her. And, you know, what's also I notice is that for... A hero whose suit looks like that yeah. show is incredibly heroic throughout this series. Oh, yeah. Even if his design looks like something you'd see from a 90s anti-hero, show still has that classic tokusatsu hero attitude. Oh, yeah, he hate. It's like you can tell that just by his behavior that he hates killing. Like He doesn't like it. He, it, it, he detests having to take lives. He hates the violence. He can all, you can see it. He is just the natural sort of, there has to be a better way type person, which there, it endears him to me quite a bit because I think we could do with more people like that in this world. Indeed we could. I think Ugh. my biggest complaint about Mizuki, even though she is the reason why Sho fights, she's very much a damsel in distress throughout this entire series. Yes. Like, she's not really I've... proactive trying to get out of any situation. She's always waiting for Sho to save her. And that's not a complaint or a knock. I don't mind no. that sort of character, but I know that there are some people who will have a problem with that. She did remind me a bit of Princess Peach forever getting kidnapped. <laughs> you know, it's just like, just take well, five minutes of self-defense. Well, just the thing is that we minutes. know that Princess Peach can defend for herself in other games, and that she is strong. Mizuki wouldn't harm a fruit fly. She'd have a heart attack at her own shadow if it crept up behind her. I, I mean, she she couldn't ruffle a pillow. It's she is the anti she is very much the antithesis of everything that could be feminine and girly in that show. And you need that in a show that's this manly. I wouldn't even say say manly. I think you need it to sort of humanize things. Indeed. Because um, if you don't have that, you get Apocalypse Zero. Well, yeah, and it just turns into violence for violence sake, again. Well, with Mizuki out of the way, do you want to talk about Agito, a.k.a. Giver 3, and 
that's not a spoiler. We find out that he's the Giver yeah. 3 uh, early on. Because I like Agito. I I like his character. I like him better in the, the, the sub. Because I think his voice is better in the sub. But we've already covered that. I like that he... Oh, how can I put this? He very much takes on almost like... He's a bit like Tommy Oliver in Power Rangers. He's like the Green Ranger or the White Ranger, you know? Coming out of nowhere and just suddenly it's like this is not going well, and suddenly he leaps in and saves the day, or helps show discover something new about his Giver power that he didn't know before. Mask of the of the Giver. Yes, and then you find out that his his adopted father is head of is uh, the acting head of Kronos Japan. And that's very much what I like about uh, Agito. He very much has to play both sides of the ball. Oh yeah, he's running both sides of the coin in that in this show for a long time. He's very much, um, if we're going to talk sort of uh, neither neither living nor dead sort of thing, he's very much the Grey Fox, if you get the reference. Metal Gear Solid. Thank you. I was worried for a second there I'd gone too far out to the left. But it's like, as he says in that, I am neither living nor dead. In Giver, Agito is trying to bring down Kronos from the inside. But he has to be, to maintain his cover, he has to be seen as sinister and serving their needs which can only play a toll on him because at one point he has to basically trap show in the school to lead him into bait for uh, the hyperzoanoid teams to attack him. Oh, that's that that attack on the school, man. Like with things like Columbine and Sandy Hook, man, that hit a little close to home to me as an American. Yeah, I can understand as well, and it's like I mean, you had Dun Blaine over here back in 93. Or was it 95? I can never get that right around me. But also, for a lot of the early start of the series, the school is like, shows safe place. And they don't him... stay there for long. No, that's the thing. Is you see him in a lot of episodes on top of the roof with um, Tetsuro discussing what's going on, trying to get their head around, you know, his Giver abilities, who the Kronos are, what the Zoonoids are, what's going on, why has this happened to us? And him just having lots of emotional moments... It's suddenly shows lost. I don't like using the term safe space. I really hate that phrase. It's his happy place. It is. It's his comfort zone. It's like his little place where he can just go and express what's on his head and get it out of his head. And they've just turned it into rubble. And it's like the, the bit where he's like, they're running for help and a security guard gets melted. Can I just say this also, one last thing about show? He suffers a lot, but it never feels like the series is being mean to him. No, he does get kicked in the balls quite a lot, metaphorically. And I think it's because he's able to get back up. And yeah. the show, like, never feels like it's punishing him for getting back up after getting knocked down. It's like there's multiple times where he says, I have to fight on, because if I don't, who will? He's trapped in an endless cycle of violence. Well, he's accepted his place. That it's his position between Kronos and world domination. And he doesn't want to be there. He'd rather be in blissful ignorance. But he's there because no one else is. And I think that sort of brings us to the organization that he's fighting, Kronos. As I've always described them, the, the very much the stereotypical evil corporation. They're very much the evil organization from Super Sentai, because in the Showa era of Kamen Rider, 
uh, the common writers, whether it's the first two, V3, uh, Stronger, they always fought these evil organizations. In the case of the original common writer, it was Shocker. For Stronger, it's the greatest name for an evil organization ever, Black Satan. Hmm. They're, they 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 sound like a lovely, wholesome, family-friendly company. I just, it's like you've got it's like you've always got the antithesis. You've got like you've got the the Autobots. You've got the Decepticons. You know their name just says it. You know Decepticons, Deception. Or if you're in Japan, Destron. Destron, yes. GI Joe always had Cobra and Destro for the American market, which I always thought was very interesting. And it was always great that Destro was running his, like, evil arms company, Mars Industries. But, again, sidetrack, let me bear with me. Now, you bring that over, you've got Kronos, who clearly, they look like, well, an investment company. And in some respects, that's quite a sinister thing. Well, they're more like a biotech firm, and if, you know, you go into any rabbit holes of biotech companies, like, oh, there's yeah. some dark shit yeah, I mean, going on there. But, I mean, to the average person, you'd look at that, like, oh, the Kronos buildings, you'd look at them and go, hmm, I wonder if they would do me a good deal on a savings and investment account. They look so unassuming. And it's what makes them so sinister, is it's just, you look, down, you look down your own high street and it's like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Whenever I have to drive to Katsukan or Otakon, I always pass by the Dow Chemical headquarters. And it looks like your average, like, big business building. I, I work on the dockyards uh, and the shipyards in Glasgow, and there are quite a few buildings as you drive along there, and it's just like, are you evil? Are you evil? <laughs> uh, well, if you know the history of Dow Chemicals, uh, yes. Are they the ones that poisoned the, that were dumping the chemicals into the water supply by any chance? Yep, they certainly have a history of polluting waters. Yep. Yep. And you say, Kronos have got this fabulous sort of like, I say it's fabulous, it's brilliant. Um, uniform policy of looking like you're about to take part in a Le Mans 24-hour race. <laughs> um, I was about to say, like, they were getting ready to play the world's most extreme game of laser tag. Well, no, but they all look like they're about to jump into a, a sort of a racing car and they, sort of yeah, try they, and catch Speed Racer. They do. They look more like they're ready to go cycling or, uh... Uh, motorcycle racing. Yeah, you know, and it's like, and, and it's like, I don't know if you ever saw Speed Racer, the I original Racer. animated series. Mako Go, um, Go, as it is called. Yeah. Uh, did you ever? There was a, te a an evil group in it called the uh, the the automobile stunt team. No, I the car the acrobatic team. The car acrobatic team. That was it. And they all drove the same style of car, and they all dressed exactly the same. As the henchmen in Kronos when they're in human form. Well, it's sort of the same thing in Tokusatsu where you have, like, the underlings that are all dressed up in the same outfit that pose no real threat to our hero. He's just there to mow him down it's before he gets to the it's big like, baddie of the it's week. Like, it's like the Putty Patrol from Power Rangers. Well, that, that's what I'm talking about. It's goons. Hired goons. We just call them foot soldiers. It's the way they transform is fantastic. It's like, oh, you yeah. just... My favorite bits of the animation are when you see them, they just drop the helmet, and it's like it's like the mic drop. It's like, oh, shit's going to go down. And then you see them transform, and you'll get a Gregol, and then you get the... Talking about the Zoonoids and yeah, the transformation in Kronos. Do we want to talk about their design? Because I, I, I didn't talk about that. I absolutely... One of my favorite things 
to moan about in video games in general, and bear with me, I'll get to this, is bad guys all looking the same. You know, the cookie-cutter bad guy. It's like they stamp them out by the hundreds and set them at the door to fight you. I can tell you right now, with reasonable accuracy, what each of the Zoonoids are and what their powers were just from looking at them. Because each and every one stood out. You knew which one was Gregor. You knew which one was Zerberbooth. You knew which one was Enzyme or Enzyme 2. Which was the one that had the, uh, the heat cannons in its shoulder? Oh, crap. I know the one you mean, and I can't pronounce them. Let's it's, not it, worry about that. It's Yeah, but it's like you, you, it was the fact that he stood there, and he just had the big shoulders, and then suddenly he's got two massive lasers that come out of his shoulders. It opens up like a clamshell. It's beautiful. And it's just to see that sort of form from like this human figure, like this unassuming figure, and then you've got like sort of just... What's the, uh, I do like the design of Gregor the best, though. Gregor, it was Gregor is the epitome of brute force and ignorance. That's, that's the uh, that's the green one, right? That's the green one with the horn. It was like yeah, it, I love it looked, that design. It, it looked kind of like a, a unicorn that had hit the gym. But one thing I like about uh, Kronos as an organization, they're evil, but they're a very simple sort of organization. They're not doing this for any sort of profit or anything. Their motivations are not profit-driven. They just want the Giver units. Yeah, and I mean, you've got... For me, my favorite one was uh, it was Elgin in the Hyperzoanoid Team 5. That sort of... He looked like a sort of an eel that had grown arms and legs, but he's like... His tent is sort of whippy-like tentacles that would electrocute you. It was just fantastic. Also, I like the designs of the head of Kronos. Like, I already mentioned the first one, Agito's dad, who looks like uh, either Tom Selleck or Don Fry. Take your pick. Richard Gaio, the guy who said it sounded like Dr. Claw, he's basically evil Johnny Bravo. That's pretty much how I would describe him. He is very much... <laughs> then, of course, you have the true head of Kronos, which is Dr. Balkus. Dr. Balkus, which is the Zoal... Was that the Zoalords? No, that's a different guy. Yes, he had the but red gem like, in his head. He looks like Sigma from Mega Man X. In fact, mm -hmm. there is a character that appears in the opening cutscene from Mega Man X6 that looks just like Dr. Balkus. I'll need to look that up, because I don't know that one. But I do like just the simplicity of Kronos as an organization. Their motivations yeah. are clear, you know what they stand for, and all of their members pose a direct threat to our heroes. Even if you know that the Giver is going to defeat the Zoonoids, it's always going to be a big fight. Oh yeah, it's it's not a not a little bit of a punch-up. It was a proper brawl. And that's pretty much the formula for a lot of these Tokusatsu heroes, where the hero goes through the foot soldiers, fights against the favorite big one's the Cenovite. Uh, because he was just like you kind jellyfish. Of... Oh yeah, I like the one that uh, that could basically turn his body into mud and become the ground and envelop himself around the Giver. Domu. Domu, yeah, Domu. Domu was my favorite uh, of like the special ones. I don't remember their names. They were. It was Daimu. He was a member of the Lost Zoonoids, or I can't remember. It was the Lost Brigade or something. Uh, but it was three zoonoids that had, um... The guys who were all bald? Yeah, they were being experimented on by Dr. Baltus. 
because one thing I like about Dr. Balkus is that he has no, um, no reservations about what he does. Oh, he has no moral compass. There are enough magnets next to his cut moral compass to take it take off like a helicopter. Even when somebody it's... questions him, he's always there to fire back. Oh, yeah. He is doing what he wants because he has the power to do it. And he believes it is his right to do it. And that's what makes him terrifying. And that's why I feel these villains are so effective. Because even if the Giver, when you boil it down, is basically just a tokusatsu show for adults... Mm -hmm. There's a lot to like in terms of its storytelling. It does a great job of capturing that tension, that uncertainty that maybe show isn't going to get out of this one alive. And this happens in the second half of the uh, second OAV series. Show kind of has trouble controlling the Giver after a major event that happens. And it's a major development of his character. And even yeah. in these 12 episodes, we see Show's character develop a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean... How how spoilery can we go in this? I mean... I try to avoid spoilers whenever possible, unless it's something mm -hmm. I don't want spoiled. But I don't really want to spoil too much for the Giver. No, the Giver is one of those ones that you have to live it. It is a very much a what-the-hell-is-gonna-happen-next kind of show. Like It's not one of the best shows of the 90s, but it's incredibly entertaining, and I can't say I was ever bored while watching it. No, it made me want to watch the next episode, which I think is a, an impressive thing. When you consider it kept the attention span of a 12-year-old boy, that's a pretty impressive trick. The fight scenes in this are pretty good. The characters are all likable. I think we've said all that we can say about this. Yeah, I think, um, I think a few of the standout ones for me is actually Gairo, uh, Giro, when he takes over Kronos in the middle half of the series. Yeah, Guyo, I call him. Richard Guyo. Yeah. For me, he reminds me very much of, like, what I would describe as, like, an 80s mob villain in, like, Hawaii Five-0 or something to be like, you know, he, wearing he the white suit. He very much has that sort of uh, mob boss presence to him. Yeah, he's, he's got the white suit and the hair. As, and as the, I like, said, very evil, much... evil Johnny Bravo. Yeah, as, um, as Lex Luthor once described, he's wearing the power suit. You know, it's just, it's like, you, you just look at him and when he sits down, he sits at the table and you just feel like he, at any point, he would flip that table and land it on your head and then just go back to doing whatever he was doing. For me, he's one of the more standout villains in this. I prefer Dr. Uh, Balkus, but Guyo is pretty good too. It's, it's, Balkus to me is the Bond villain. You know, the, he's the, the Blofeld at the end of it all. He's the one that's just sitting there and it's like, this will be my new world order according to this and that. And for me, that's very, you know, stereotypical of a lot of these things where there's like, there's the one big bad at the end. Whereas Richard Gio, throughout the whole thing, you can see, it's almost like you can see like he's trying to win as opposed to being like just there to fill in a space. He serves it's a like, purpose. Yeah, for a lot of it, you think he is the big bad. But then it turns out that his boss is a boss, much like uh, Dark Spectre from Power Rangers. Yes, and Ecliptor. Well, Ecliptor was basically Astronema's right-hand man. God, we're getting nerdy on this one. Yeah. Um, I think we're pretty much, we've covered all the main characters that are noteworthy. We've talked about the story as well, but like, what are your like overall thoughts on this? Because honestly... Even though I feel it does suffer a bit from lackluster animation in the second half, 
I think this is ultimately an entertaining watch. It is in the current state of things where most shows are canned after two seasons because they haven't got a decent toy line going. Well, it's it's not it's more or less has to deal with DVD sales. Yeah, but like, so there's been so many. The Giver, this version of the Giver wouldn't get out today. In modern times, it wouldn't get made, I not because think... it's not good, but because the people that would want to make money from it wouldn't let them only have that much of a story. It's still going strong to this day, and it still has a bit of a cult following. I wouldn't be surprised if we do get another Giver, but I don't know if it's popular enough that we'll get another I, series I in don't Japan. Think, I don't think we'll get another Giver like that. I think it'll more go down the route of what they've done with the likes of Castlevania on Netflix. Well, not even that either. I'm talking like from a Japanese perspective. Oh, from a Japanese perspective. Well, you might do. But I mean, it's the kind of show that, if I'm honest, it's the kind of show that I think would benefit from like a, a, a video game adaptation. Maybe. We'll see. Um, for we me, can hope. I quite enjoyed the Giver Awavies, and it's really something that sort of encapsulates what the perception of anime was around the mid-90s. Because yes. the anime industry around that time was trying to convince the masses that these cartoons are not for kids. So, like, what was anime back then? It was Akira. It was M.D. Geist. It was Ninja Scroll. It was Vampire Hunter D. It was Wicked City. It was, indeed, The Giver. These, like, hyper-violent cartoons that came from Japan. That's oh, what yeah. anime and, was from the time. And, and it was, like, the some of the most batshit crazy stories as well. Some of those hyper-violent anime have aged well, and some have not, and I'll definitely be having you on again uh, to talk about um, some of them. Some of them have become Violence Jack, which is worthy of its own show. Oh, Just... it will have its day. Oh, God, I'll need to take stomach suppressants for that one. But, yeah, it's... For me, it's my genesis for getting into anime, as I've said. Honestly, this isn't a bad entry-level anime. I mean... Even looking back at it now, I'd say this is an enjoyable watch. It's not something... It's something I would definitely recommend to teenagers. I wouldn't necessarily say to someone who's about the age my dad showed me at age 12. I'd say, but... like, if you're 16 or 17, this is a good yeah. starting point. I mean, there's... I mean, compared to the, the one-shot OVA, there's a distinctly less amount of disturbing penetration, shall we say. But less gratuitous still... nudity. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, that caught me off guard the first time I watched the OVA. But I think this show as well, it's also, it's a really good one if you're looking for something a little bit different. A little bit less, how can I put this? It's If you're a fan of, like, tokusatsu, you should check out Giver. Yeah, if you're into your anti-heroes, the well, likes of... Well, the thing is, Giver's not really an anti-hero. Well, anti-heroes may be the wrong word. Reluctant hero is a better one. I'd say like more like a grittier sort of superhero. Yeah, he's like he's like an eighteen rated Spider Man. It's ironically enough, it's how I would like them to do a Blue Beetle movie with Jaime Reyes, if you get the reference. I get the um, reference. I know about Blue Beetle. I would hope so. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Um, but it's very much for me. It's a door opener for sort of getting into anime of that style of the not the ultra violent, but the violent style where there's 
like a lot of nastiness that goes on in it, but it's balanced and very realistic. It's not violence for violence sake. I totally agree with you. And as well, I think it's a very interesting one to analyse as well, as we've just done over the last nearly four hours. I think it shows a shift, or not so much a shift, but an attempt to find balance between the two ends of the spectrum for anime that everyone believed was what you got in anime. Because you either got cutesy or you got violence, Jack. That's what the... When I was, when I was first sort of going through catalogues and looking at things like Cowboy Bebop and Tank Police and all that sort of thing. It was very much a... You either had one end of the scale or the other. There wasn't a sort of middle ground. And Guyver sits in that middle ground and it was the first one I ever saw that sat in that middle ground. There are other ones now, but it's very much... And also, it's a very different take on the magical suit of armor style of hero. Much like Tekkenan Blade. Yeah. It's a very organic sort of look to it and everything... And even the the Zonoids have got this lovely organic look, and they just—it's like they are—they are still some of my favorite bad guys of like looking through stuff. There's some absolutely stunning stuff and stunning visuals. One of my favorite animes for visuals is um, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, where she's standing atop of the buildings and it pans across, and you've got that sort of neon punk Tokyo skyline with all the different neon billboards. And then, for me, the one that equals to that is that scene in the Giver where you've just got the shadow and you've got the two eyes and the control medal glowing and the sort of the wispiness of the smoke around it from the glow behind him. That's freaking intimidating. And I love it. Indeed it is. And I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Don't worry, we will talk about the 2005 five tv series sometime down the line and we will probably be talking about the two live action movies in a bonus episode or something but oh yeah that's gonna do it for this episode and oh boy this is gonna be a long one um (laughs) welcome to editing hell i'm sorry (laughs) it'll probably come out to like an hour 20 or something i don't know as far as where to find this thing, unfortunately, it is out of print, as I said in the disclaimer, and those DVDs can range anywhere from, like, 50 to $100. Again, yeah. I got lucky. A used game store in Connecticut was selling those things for, like, 7 bucks each, so I lucked out on those. If you're gonna buy them, be warned, they are are a manga video release and they're not the best of quality from a video standpoint uh the opening credits of like gray boxes where the japanese text should be and also they replaced the opening and endings with stock techno music the ending song sounds like something from mortal kombat uk wise i believe these turn up in secondhand shops on a regular basis but again finding them you just have to be it's timing i mean i've got lucky i've got a dvd of guyver dark hero one of the live ones that i picked up out of a second hand shop but finding these it's like hen's teeth like a lot of those from like the early 2000s all the way up until the end of the bubble period in 2008 some of those discs are getting harder and harder to come by and i really oh, yeah. love to collect them but that will do it for this episode If this thing ever gets a re-release, I am hoping that we get both English dubs for it, along with a commentary track from Les Claypool. So, Discotech, 
This thing has your name all over it. But I would buy the shit out of that. I'd buy two copies just to have an extra one. But could you play it in your region? I would find a way. But that's going to do it for this episode. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we'll once again get on our bikes and ride the strange post-war world that is Kino's Journey. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. And this was Sub. And we're signing off and saying, Bio Booster Armor Giver, he's coming to get you.